Hello and welcome to Can You See It, the flagship podcast series from the editorial team of the Arthniti, the official research journal of the Department of Economics, St. Xavier's College, Mumbai. In this episode, we will have a conversation with economist and author Ajay Shah. Dr. Ajay Shah is a public policy economist and the co-author of the book In Service of the Republic with Dr. Vijay Kerkar. He has been the president of Center for Monitoring Indian Economy and a professor at Indira Gandhi Institute of Development Research and National Institute of Public Finance and Policy. He has decades of experience and expertise in the arena of public policy. We are, and we are very honored to have him on this podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for uh, joining us today, Dr. Shah. So our first question for you is, so our theme for our journal this year is forces. What, in your opinion, acts as a frictional force against sound policymaking and its implementation in India? So um, I have somewhat unusual views on this subject. So on one hand, uh, all of us are ready to talk about one practical problem after another, okay? So we will say labor law is messed up in this fashion, or we'll say that India is entering into international trade and so on. But when you look deeper, it takes you into the subject of political economy, which is a confluence of ideas and interests. I feel that uh, there has been a great gap in the ideas. I feel that there is a lack of ideas. I feel we have not understood the problems and that is how we are floundering around doing poor solutions, weak solutions, suboptimal solutions. If you look back at the sweep of Indian history, in some sense from 1910 till 1947, there was a 37 year period in which the Indian intelligentsia, the Indian elite, figured out what it was going to do with free India so that when independence came, we had a program, we had a plan, okay? And I'm not necessarily saying the plan was right, but there was a long thinking process that led up to the plan. And for some years, that plan worked. It delivered, it did add value for some years. Then by the early 60s, that approach petered out, okay? So that was an approach of development economics. That was an approach of the developmental state. That was an approach of state leadership. And it didn't work. By the late 60s, it was apparent that it was not working. And then there was a great process of thinking and debate and scholarship, which led to new ideas being created. So for 15 years, it looked like we were in the wilderness from 1962 to 1977. This was just the worst period in India's history. Okay, we had a 62 war, we had Nehru's death in 64, we had a China war in, uh, sorry, we had a Pakistan war in 65, we had two consecutive droughts, Uh, we had the bank nationalization, we had the collapse of institutions and Indian democracy with Indira Gandhi. Matters made worse by Indira Gandhi winning handsomely in early 1971 in the Lok Sabha elections, and then uh, winning the Pakistan war in 1971, okay? So there was an incredible concentration of power with Indira Gandhi and commensurately the destruction of institutions. These things tend to go hand in hand. Powerful individuals are bad for institutions. And that gave a pell-mell collapse in the economy. So by 1974, the country was up in flames. Economic growth had collapsed. Uh, Inflation that gave us the emergency. And that led up to the elections of 1977. 
over this 15 year period from 62 to 77 a very important churning was going on in parallel in the intellectual community okay so delhi school of economics famously drove tn srinivasan and jagdish bhagwati out of the country but the point is that tn srinivasan and jagdish bhagwati were key people who figured this out manmohan singh was a key person who figured this out ashok desai was a key person who figured this out so whole new package of knowledge came together in india and from 77 onwards it was rolled out so we should think of these intellectual journeys the ideas matter disproportionately in the short term it appears that the ideas are irrelevant in the long term nothing matters more than concepts frameworks understanding diagnosis problems solutions i feel that we in india are stuck we don't have a plan we don't have a strategy we don't know what has gone wrong and we don't know how to fix it and so i feel that the great constraint of all is intellectual capacity we don't have enough deep thinking about law politics political economy the indian state public administration public economics economics we've got to break out of all our traditional barriers and start thinking about these things from first principles what works what doesn't work why do things fail what has failed can we unsentimentally describe failure can we diagnose failure can we build a research literature that's the greatest constraint in india today right sir thank you so our next question is um <clears throat> so in your book in service of the republic you have talked about how the indian constitution and policies that have been drafted they have an implicit assumption in them of having a benevolent agent um we have we in india um, have this very paternalistic and romantic view towards the state but that's different from uh, a country such as the us where the constitution was drafted with uh, exactly the opposite assumption Yeah. So, where do you think this difference comes from? Where does this paternalistic and romantic assumption comes from uh, in India? It comes from Gandhi ji and Nehru. So, when we got freedom, we thought our leaders are going to be like Gandhi ji and Nehru. So, if you and I were members of the Constituent Assembly debate, and we were thinking that we are in a world of Gandhi ji and Nehru, you know, we were very comfortable with the idea of state power. We didn't think that the state was a very dangerous creature. We thought all the problems of the state are because of colonialism. you know that if an ics officer behaves badly it's because he's a colonial officer the moment we change it from ics to ias suddenly all the problems are going to go away okay so we in india are in this very peculiar place today on one hand i think for most of us we understand that the indian state is a profoundly dangerous creature that the individuals that make up the indian state are venal and dangerous and harmful but then constantly when we start thinking about policy we want the state to do this and we want the state to do that and that's an example of what i was saying that we are not there we don't have an intellectual freedom framework we haven't figured out what has gone wrong in india and we haven't got an intellectual philosophy that will carry us through this you know so there's a lot of talk that in 1991 india did some market oriented reforms i'd like to say you know not really by and large the rule of officials remains the most important the most dangerous people in india today is an adi officials they can destroy your life no private person is safe given the arbitrary power that is vested in officials so we are in a peculiar middle road that we have inherited a world view which was born of the post independence period where we viewed the leadership as benevolent we viewed officials as benevolent we thought that we are all one happy family government is like some ngo we mean well we are all goody goody and we are going to now put our hands together and we are going to fix the country okay standing in 2020 we know that's just not true it hasn't happened it hasn't worked standing in 2020 on one hand we are all ready to criticize the state we know that the state is broken on any problem when you go look at public policy 
You know the public policy is broken. You know the officials are broken. You know the departments are broken. You know the government agencies are broken. You know the public sector companies are broken. But has that changed our thinking at a deeper level? No, it hasn't. So that's the intellectual journey that is now waiting in front of us. Right, sir. That makes a lot of sense. Um, our next question is, so while we know that governments do tend to be interventionary, that they do uh, tend to intervene in the functions of the market and other processes, um, in India, we've seen that sometimes the judiciary can be too. Um, for example, um, in the case of the government versus the telecom companies over the AGR dues that they had to pay, so the government and the telecom companies had reached an understanding that the government would allow them to defer payments by a certain period. But the Supreme Court held that they must be paid immediately. Another example is the case of the uh, Cyrus Misty versus Tata Sons case, where the appellate tribunal asked Cyrus Misty to be reinstated as the Tata Group chairman mm -hmm. while he hadn't even asked for it. So what uh, do you think that there should be limits on such actions by the judiciary too? And uh, if so, who would impose them? So uh, this goes back to foundations. Uh, there is a lack of understanding in India on a broad basis about some of these basics of what constitutes the state. The state is three branches of government. There is a legislative branch, an executive branch, and a judicial branch. And all of us are confused, okay? So all of us are very comfortable thinking there is some ruler and the ruler can do whatever he wants. Okay, that's not correct. So consider the Indian Penal Code, okay? Whether we criminalize gay sex or not is a subject of the legislative branch and only the legislative branch can design what are the sections of the IPC subject to the modification that they cannot be unconstitutional. So the purpose of the constitution is to produce checks and balances against majoritarian behavior that just winning 51% of the seats in the Lok Sabha does not give you the power to trample on fundamental rights. That's the concept of the constitution. So within constraints, laws are written by the legislature. Then the job of the executive is to discharge those laws. The executive cannot write laws. The executive is not the ruler. Okay? Nobody's a ruler. Power is dispersed. That's the meaning of liberal democracy. No one person controls the power. So the job of the executive is to implement the laws in ways that are envisioned in the laws. So, for example, if the law says that a policeman can kick in your door and walk into your house at 3 a.m., then the policeman will do that. If the law says that the policeman cannot step into your house after 7 p.m., then the policeman will do that. So now it becomes what is written in the laws. If you draft bad laws, the executive will behave badly. But in any case, let us never forget, the executive is not your ruler. The official is not your ruler. Okay. And the third is the judiciary. The purpose of the judiciary is to adjudicate disputes. That's all. No more, no less. So either two people come in front of the judiciary and say, I have this dispute. Please read the law and tell me what is right. Or the policeman charges me with a crime. And then that goes to the judiciary. The policeman tries to argue that I'm guilty. I try to argue that I'm not guilty. And the job of the judiciary is to rule on that dispute. Okay, It's not okay if the executive is ruling on disputes. That is unconstitutional. It should never happen that a mere official of the Indian state is becoming a judge. And it should never happen that the judge becomes an official. And the judge should not be drafting parliamentary law. The judge should interpret parliamentary law, should convert high-level conceptual understandings of parliamentary law into practical solutions when faced with disputes. So this is the clarity of what is the legislature, what is the executive, and what is the judiciary, and the dispersion of power between the three. And all too often in India, we don't have this clarity. We weren't taught this in school. We're not taught this in college. 
most people are not taught this in law school. So basic understanding of government is missing in India. And this is our problem. This is our barrier. We have some mental model that government is a good guy. He's a ruler. He'll tell me what to do. That's just wrong and dangerous. Right, sir. Right. Um, so your work in financial securities markets is also quite intensive. Um, could you tell us what the implications of the new SEBI regulations that restrict intraday trading and require margins on buying selling would be on retail investing and stock stock markets overall? I don't want to go into the narrow details, but I want to give you a big picture perspective. Uh, in the early 90s, a uh, uh, great reforms program began in India, uh, where uh, NSC and NSDL and SEBI were created together, and they exerted a transformative impact on the securities markets. Now, part of this was a philosophy change. You needed to understand modern financial economics. You needed to understand that trading is good, that more people participating in markets is good, that more sophistication, more brain power, more analytical power more statistical software, more computer engines, analyzing markets, processing markets is good. Unfortunately, in the last uh, five, 10 years, this intellectual clarity and the practical policy arrangement of SEBI, NSE, and NSDL has broken down. And now every day we are seeing more and more things going backwards that we have gone back to a much more socialist mindset and the working arrangements between the exchange infrastructure the securities regulator, the Ministry of Finance, all this has broken down. So as a consequence, the process of making progress in the Indian financial markets has broken down. So now we're in a long journey. We first have to recreate those institutional arrangements and then maybe much after that, we can get back to making more progress. Right, sir. Um, so our next question is, so based on the principles that you've laid out in your book and also basic principles that we learn in economics, um, the farm bills that have recently been introduced will prove to be beneficial to the farmers. But there have been large-scale protests from them against it. The opposition and many state governments have also said that they will bring out policies to negate these farm bills if they come in power. What do you think is going wrong? So the first is I am solidly in favor of these farm bills. Okay, They are in the right direction. So, I mean, let's make no bones about it. The way in which the traditional APMC and the arrangements work is, is just not a good idea. And these bills are in the right direction. So I'm 100% in favor of these changes. That said, these changes are not the complete story. So Kelkar and I, we always argue that doing public policy is a test match. It's not an IPL. You won't score it in one batch. So for example, I told you a moment ago about the financial markets. Right. This is a process that began in the 80s. Okay, Knowledge, intellectual consensus, and human beings, most importantly, people were built in the 80s. From the 90s onwards, this process kicked into action. And roughly speaking, from uh, the 90s till about you know, 2009, 2010, this process ran and produced enormous changes. That's the kind of time horizon that it takes to get meaningful change. And then once you get the meaningful change, you can't rest on your laurels. Because in the last 10 years, the work process of the financial markets reform has actually gone in reverse. One by one, many things have started going wrong. The people have been disrupted. The institutionals have been disrupted. The institutional arrangement has been disrupted. It's just unbelievable how badly this work pro program has gone into reverse. So in similar fashion, fixing Indian agriculture is complicated. There are a large number of restrictions and they all need to go. Okay. And in the short term, when you take out two, three restrictions and you hold the rest of the machinery intact, it can be bad in the short term. And I can see why some people will be <clears throat> unhappy in the short term. But there again, 
you need people you need intellectual consensus you need a large number of people in the system who are understanding the reform who are participating in the reform who are writing about it who are building knowledge that's the way to build reform if a few people in leadership positions push a few things through it doesn't work you need a broad base of people of institutions of intellectual capacity of researchers of papers and then it all comes together and then we get a process of change right sir um so in the case of rising fiscal deficits and non gst compensation to the states the states are encouraged to borrow funds to cover up their shortfall this would lead to crowding out of private investment which then has to rely on international finance in the wake of the pandemic and an already weak economy do you think exposing ourselves to uncertain international pressures is the only option so i'd like to say it in two different ways that first is there is an investment collapse in the country so right now there's no crowding out okay so there's no uh, possibility of private people finding difficulties in raising capital in fact the current account has turned into surplus i do believe that in the recovery firms will need to rebuild themselves and there's going to be a massive thirst of capital so as and when the recovery starts there will be real thirst of capital lots of firms are going to ask for capital and at that point we'll swing back into current account deficit so that is an issue uh, the real problem in india is that the borrowing arrangements of the union government and of the state governments are pretty faulty okay what you want is a professional investment banker and at present we don't have one so if you think of a private firm if you think that larsen and tobro wants to borrow they will go to goldman sachs they will get a highly capable team that is able to guide them on what are the most effective ways of fundraising the firm will listen to their advice and then they'll make up their minds they'll make decisions these decisions will go back as instructions to the investment banker and the investment banker will impl implement this this is called a public debt management agency in the context of government borrowing so to support the borrowing of the union government and the state governments we need more capability we need more institutional capacity we need more sophistication at present for example there is no single database in the country which knows the comprehensive borrowing position of the union and the states we, we just don't have basics of institutional capacity imagine if i'm larsen and tubro and i go talk with goldman sachs and i don't have a database of my outstanding debts you know that's the place where we are in the indian state so very basic institutional development is required to make it more feasible for uh, indian government uh, uh, elements whether it is a union government or the state government to borrow properly this is a reform that was begun in 2015 it was announced in the budget speech but then it was rolled back later we need to go back to that right sir um so in your book um you made a statement what you measure is what you can manage so recently in the parliament's monsoon session the response of the government to many queries raised by the mps has been that they just do not have the data yeah. is this an indication of a government failure like we have market <laughs> failures additionally the measurement of which data do you think would have helped the government to manage this crisis better so i i would go to basics if you don't know then how do you know that you're making the right decisions so this goes back to intellectual foundations we have to slow down stop it is dangerous for the state to intervene in human society if you don't have the evidence you should not be doing it so i'm i would advocate very very limited conservative movements in terms of actual policy actions until you have the <clears throat> evidentiary base we should be building data sets we should be building researchers we should be building research on a large number of practical moves that governments are making in india today the evidence is not there the research is not there the researchers is not are not there i find it very uncomfortable that how can you make decisions without 
the adequate knowledge. Once again, to use a firm analogy, if a firm does not have its own MIS, if a firm does not know what's happening inside its business, then how can people make decisions? Now, you will say in the olden days, people used to make decisions without data. Yeah, you can, but it's much more risky. It's much more dangerous. It would be wise to first spend 10, 20 years in this country building data sets, building knowledge, building researchers, building research, building a community that have this kind of knowledge in India. Then we can actually do policy projects in a greater state of confidence. Right, sir. Um, so Dr. Rajan and Dr. Acharya in their very recent paper, Indian Banks, A Time to Reform, have talked about a public credit registry and an online platform for distressed loan sales. Yeah. In reference to your extensive work in bankruptcy and payment settlement systems, what is your view on the feasibility of such a measure? And what does the government need to change structurally to ensure implementation of this measure? Yeah. So public credit registry, I am pretty skeptical about. Okay, There are many private credit bureaus. There are many, many private companies. Why do you want to create one more PSU? And see, the thing is, once you create a PSU, it will become a monopoly. Because RBI will create the PSU, then RBI will start using state power to force people to use that PSU. I just don't understand that. In the 21st century, we should not be making new PSUs. We should not be creating new government monopolies. It is not the place of government to do central planning. It is not the place of government to tell people what technology to use. Right. Um, so thank you, sir. We actually learned a lot from these um, answers of yours. Um, we will now move on to our uh, fund segment and I will hand over to Harneet uh, for that. Okay. So this segment is uh, similar to a rapid fire round. Uh, I would be listing out certain themes, uh, ideas and current affair concepts. Okay. And I would like you to give your opinion on them in one sentence. So what comes to your mind? Okay. Just in a line. Okay. Shall we begin? Yeah. Um, universal basic income. Premature policy thinking. Um, cryptocurrency. Government interference with human freedom. Um, policy versus academia. Mm -hmm. With which has your experience been better? Um, more intimately interconnected than you think. Uh, Atmanirbhar Bharat package. Um, Self-reliance, import substitution, India of the 60s, Brazil of the 60s. Right. Um, biggest failure in Indian public policy and biggest success of Indian public policy? Uh, biggest failure in Indian public policy, building a big state. Biggest failure in Indian, uh, biggest success of Indian public policy, building and protecting democracy. Uh, your favorite economist? John Maynard Keynes. Your favorite book? Seeing Like a State by James C. Scott. Okay, lovely. And finally, what inspires you? The dream that there can be a combination of science and action and we can be rational and we can actually do things in the world and uh, we can actually be a part of useful things. Great. That's all for this segment. Thank you so much. That was absolutely great. Uh, so just to top it off, sir, and before I give you, before I deliver the vote of thanks, what is one, uh, one sort of one last statement of advice that you would give to budding economists, budding students, the younger generation of Indians? The one thing I would like to say is set your sights high. Um, all too often, we get drowned in practical career considerations. We are all being corporatist. 
I want to get a job. I want to get a promotion. I want to get into PhD. I want to get some pubs. I want to get tenure. We're just running around like monkeys. Uh, set your sights high. Your life is worth more than that. Thank you so much. So we've learned tremendous amounts from this talk. Thank you for taking the time out to yeah. come to come to our podcast series. Can you see it? Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Stay tuned for our upcoming episode where we speak to Mr. Subhash Chandragarg, the former finance secretary of India.